random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Michael Allred, and I write and draw comic books. And I'm currently working on uh, Batman Dark Age for DC Comics. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with, all the way over in Oregon, the legendary comic creator, Michael Allred. Michael, how are you? I've uh, never been better. Really good. So this has been an interview... How inter- are you? Pretty good. This has been an interview years in the making, kind of, and it's... I want to tell the audience at home how this originally was supposed to have been done, because I love a good bit... And we were planning on doing this back in the day in the style of Civil War letter correspondence. And I'm so bummed it didn't get to happen, but like... We could have had a tin can and string for real then, too. Well, no, we would have had, you know, paper. We would have a postman. You know, the Pony Express Express. is a thing, Eddie, Mm -hmm. or was a thing. But, you know, we would have made it a thing again. Yeah. But, like, it would have literally been, like, correspondence every week. Every episode would have featured, and now a bonus interview with Michael Allred, part 37, or something like that. <laughs> Oof. But just the idea of, like, asking, it was going to be weekly, and it would be, like, every episode, every letter would open with, Dearest so-and-so, the war is hard. <laughs> so that's about it for that. But I just wanted to, you know, say, like, I'm a big fan. I've been a big fan for a long time. And, you know, when I got back into comics in the year of our Lord 2021 or 2011, I remember discovering your stuff and being attracted to it because of that level of it's old meets new and just there's a slickness to it. You know, I've never really thought of the term, but like slick is a word that works perfectly for that art style. And I've always adored it and always been a big fan and yeah <laughs> well i've i've heard it referred to as retro or um i my i prefer to my goal is to make it timeless and classic i don't want to follow any trends i just want to uh i want it to be timeless and and evergreen and it is it absolutely is like you look at something like the early madman comics still look like it could be something that comes out nowadays and it's Good. kind of insane like when you look at that and you look at you know the work you've done at marvel like you know for example the uh x-force x-static stuff insane how you know timeless it really is good mission accomplished <laughs> to the next right what if you can michael track down the uh the order of your works if you can kind of do that in some particular order, and uh, and we'll, then we'll go further oh, back than that. Um, well, if you remember, um, you know, I did so many as this, and then they asked me to do this title, and so it branched out. I don't know, you know, um, what... It, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, th- this w- uh, making comics was a childhood dream, but I had no idea how to go about it, and 
just kind of fell into it with some help and people pointing me in the right direction in the late 80s and and had my first book published in late 89 when I was still a TV reporter in Europe. And, mm. and my goal was I just wanted something that, like, I could show my dad, you know, show my, show my family, show my friends, and just go, hey, I made this, you know. But what happened was every time I would finish something, I was so dissatisfied with it. I, the itch was terrible, and I just had to do something else and something else and something else. And that's been my, that's been the most consistent aspect of my career is wanting the next thing I do or what's right in front of me to be the best thing I've ever done. I, and um, I always feel like, no, I can do better. And so it, it just keeps pushing me on. And just a basic, intense love of comic books and making comic books. I just love it so much. But I just, it's so strange to be asked that question because I remember thinking I would be happy if I just had something published. Just, you know, I, I had a broadcasting career, and, and so I just thought it would be fun to just have this, this conversation starter if I could pull out a comic book and go, yeah, I made this. But it's now gotten to the point where, I, I, you tell me, is there an IMDb for comic books? Because I'm actually lost in <laughs> finding like all the different covers and yeah. and uh, short stories. Like it's easy for me to trace the series I've done. Um, almost every series I've done has been given the omnibus treatment, so I can look behind me and and see all the different omnibuses that you know I can jump from. Um, but all of the uh, the detours in between, I've, it's strange that I've actually done so much that I can't remember what I've done. Mm-hmm. So there is. It's called the Grand Comics Database, the GCD, and I'm actually going to be looking you up right now. So let's, oh, let me write that down. G- GCD? Yeah. It's the Grand GCD.com? Com- well, no, uh, comics.org. And then it's that's just the name of the Grand Comics Database. They're a, okay. They are I'm embarrassed that I don't know that. No, I, it's perfectly I'm so fine. Technically illiterate. Uh, in fact, I I, um, I I tend to slip into recluse mode, and because there's this, in fact, main motivation for you know slipping out of my bat cave and talking to people is this big event in Orlando uh, starting the 26th of this month. It's the original art expo, and I'm so excited about this first of its kind event and i just want the people that put it together to have as much success as possible so that it continues over over the years like we went to every san diego comic-con um the year before it moved into the convention center it is now and then every year for at least 10 years where we watched um they'd bring down another wall and expand it another wall expand it and we got to see it grow into the monster that it is now but it and most major conventions um they're comic book conventions but comic books tend to get lost at times and here's a convention that actually focuses completely on the art form itself and um i'm really excited about that and also the guest list with all of my peers and um, that I'm friends with or a fan of, never stopped being a fan. 
And um, so, yeah, and I, I am constantly wanting to remember what else a favorite artist has done. So I'm very grateful for that information you just gave me. And it's, but, it, it's um, funny because... Just, like the... If I were to just quickly... Uh, right at, Very early on, I was offered Neil Gaiman. Just, I'd only had a handful of things published. And my uh, second professional who uh my second friend comic book professional in the business was matt wagner and he was always and remains very supportive and had turned neil gaiman onto my work and neil gaiman called me one day and asked me to do sandman and um i thought okay here we go this is the beginning of my career it uh, it, it came later but prior to that uh, my first work was Dead Air, which was a graphic novel published by Slave Labor. Did three issues of Graphic Music uh, Anthology, uh, in, in the way Love and Rockets is an anthology, where I had this umbrella title where I could tell whatever I, uh, any story I wanted to. Um, and uh, then when we moved back to the States from Europe, uh, I did Graphic Music, more phonetically spelled version of the same thing. Um, and even though my ultimate goal was to work with major publishers, it, I just never figured out how to make that happen. And Sandman felt like was going to be the first thing to make that happen. And since it didn't, I just kept plugging away with my own stuff. And then it was with uh, Madman that I had my first major success in the business and it being crater owned spoiled me. Uh, and also being under the mentorship and of Kevin Eastman, who hugely successful co-creating Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I was trained in what I should expect as far as creator rights and how to be treated as a creator. So when the major publishers came calling because of the success I had independently, I was already well-schooled into... Um, you know, know what I want and, and how to do what I want. And uh, so I, uh, being, I think it was the first time a creator-owned character crossed over with Superman, um, it was amazing how much freedom I was given. And only one thing in this entire three-issue project was asked to be changed. And that's because of, of kind of the uh, ground uh, that I had built underneath myself. So I don't know that's jumping around, but just to quickly say that's really the genesis of my career, thinking that the be-all, end-all was to work for Marvel or DC and having an unexpected su success with my own creations um, has allowed me to move back and forth. And I think I've worked for virtually every publisher, if only on a cover, and I really love that. I love having the freedom to, to move around and not be corralled into any particular um, venue. Well, you've been one of those creators that whenever I see your work on a cover, I know it's a must-buy, and I know, it's a, I know I'm in for a uh, visual treat because there's a bombacity to those covers. Like, I was, you know, thinking, like, what is something that I could use to describe? And, you know, lately I've been reading through a lot of, you know, 1960s Avengers. And I feel like, you know, your work is like Don Heck meets Jack Kirby 
you know, and somehow like a Kinks record exploded in the middle of it. And it's like Kinks record. Well, I mean, sorry to interrupt, but I, as a kid, drew my own record album cover. <laughs> See, <laughs> I uh, and in fact, uh, rock and roll magazines, uh, uh, magazine covers, record album covers, those were hugely inspirational on my design sense, and for me, uh, pop art. My dad always had all these art books. He was a psychologist, but he very much wanted to be an artist. And so design books were uh, always within reach growing up. And I always tied all that together, the design aspects, and will pull from inspiration from anywhere. But I really want my comics to have a rock and roll vibe. So for you to say you got a King's vibe, that could not be more flattering. It's it's like I hear the music like I could hear Waterloo Sunset playing like as I see some of these covers like there's there's that one Marvel Comics 1000 that you did and how you get everything just coming at the viewer like you see it coming at you it's it's like a uh, I want to use the word but not mispronounce it so I'm not going to say it, but I was going to go with Orlock oracular Eddie. Uh, cool. An ocular thing? An, oc- an ocular spectacular, you know? Okay. I was going to say, I thought you were going to go with kaleidoscope or something. But it, it just, like, explodes, and there's a bombacity to it. Bombastic is, it's it, your work is like a living Kirby crackle in a lot of ways. Huh. You know? And Thank you. I love that about it, Like, and I will always say that because, like, there's something special, something like, even, you know, the, there's one cover that I've been talking about for years now, ever since I saw it, and it made me so sad, but because that's the emotion that you wanted the viewer to have, was the final issue of Silver Surfer. And it uh. broke my heart when I saw that, because you see, and it's like, it's the storytelling also, like, not just, you know, because the whole Silver Surfer story is, you know, essentially, you know, Dan Slott, you know, auditioning for a Doctor Who comic, but what I love is that cover you even tell the relationship a story of like a breakup through that cover because you know there's that you know the relationship looking back at the past and I love seeing that and seeing him stoic. Well, not and, a breakup, but a, a loss. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, like you know, as a as a hopeless romantic uh, man child, like seeing that cover, like that was the impression I got for it. But like, it is absolutely true with loss. You know, going forward though, too, and. That uncertainty, like you see a little bit of uncertainty on Nora and Rad's face, and damn, like just that emotion, like that is honest to God, one of my all-time favorite covers, legit ever. That, that means a lot. It's it's one of my favorite things I've ever done, and uh, I gotta say, probably the the most satisfying ending ending of any project I've ever worked on. It, and the love story aspect of it is so beautiful and so complete and selfless on Norn's part. Um, I, I just love it. To, I just infinitely feel so much joy for having been able to, to play with that. Michael, going back to um, what struck a chord with me, not, and it was before you said broadcast career, because that's what I do for a living, is, is radio. But you said something about doing some early work and not being satisfied with it. Now, Part of what I like to think of is it's a work in progress. You're your own worst critic. I assume that translated over from one medium to you, to another. But I wasn't sure if, you know, the stuff that you said, that nah, wasn't good enough, whatever. Were, 
that was your own opinion. Were you still showing other people early on? Oh, sure. But, you know, nobody in the business. And uh, Steve Siegel was the first uh, professional that I met uh, in Colorado Springs when I taught television production at the Air Force Academy. And when I met him, his he's a writer. He co-created Ben 10 and Big Hero 6 and, and has done a lot of great uh, comics. Um, I met him at Pikes Peaks Books and Comics. My, my best buddy at the time, Charlie Custis, um, introduced us, a big comic book fan who encouraged me to... Uh, he saw that I was an artist, and he was the one that got me back into trying to draw comics. And um, meeting Steve, he, his first book had just come out called Kafka, and he was at the comic shop signing his books. Um, not at a signing. He was, like, in the back of the store with uh, taking his books off the shelf, mm-hmm. signing them, and then putting them back. <laughs> oh, wow. so the, and this is brilliant. You know, it, uh, people come into the store, and they see, and the store owners could go, oh, yeah, these are signed. You know, the creator lives here in town. And um, so instant, you know, signed comic book. But he um, really was invaluable to me learning um like he showed, he was the one that told me how to submit uh, work, you know, how to to send in proposals and where to send them, showing me that the indicia was where you could find the address of any publisher, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, so he was uh, the first person who really knew how the business worked that and you know, I don't know how he did know, but he did. Brilliant guy. One of the smartest people I've ever met. But it was him that helped me realize that it was possible to at least reach out and and take a shot. And he was also the, the person um, that made me take the swing, the big swing, to do comics full-time with the proposal for a series called Jaguar Stories that we sold to Kamiko. And but then Kamiko immediately went into bankruptcy, and that never happened. But Steve was invaluable um, as far as you know guiding me. And so, what? When in fact, one of the first things that he told me, one of the most valuable pieces of information he ever told me, was when I was criticizing my work to him. Like he would, he was looking at what I was doing and praising it. And then I immediately started telling him what was wrong with it. Well, I need to do this, and I need to be better at this, and I wish I could be better at that. And he was like, shut up. (laughs) Never tell anybody what you think is wrong with your work. Let them enjoy it or not enjoy it. Let them decide what's wrong with it or what it's lacking. You know, people are always going to find what they like or turn away from stuff they don't like. You don't need to help them decide not to like it. And that was like, wow, of course. That being self-deprecating with something that you're passionate about isn't very wise. And I, I took that to heart immediately. And at the same time, learned to be self-critical. And um, that, that's a valuable skill. I, what I always tell people is never let anybody take away your joy of creating. It, 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 nobody's 
not everybody is going to have everybody love their work. That's that's a given. Some people might do work that nobody ever likes. Mm-hmm. But if you like it, if you enjoy doing it, never let anything or anybody take that joy of creating away from you. That's a personal thing. You know, if if it becomes professional or of quality to where it could be professional and people are paying you to do it, that's a bonus. But if you like what you do, you'll keep doing it. If you keep doing it, you get better at it. And the better you get at it, the more you want to do it. And the more you want to do it, the better you get at it. Now, what I had to learn the hard way was that I still, as much as I love doing what I do, I still have to be my harshest critic. I have to be able to recognize what can be improved upon um, before anybody else does. I shouldn't have anybody look at my work and tell me that something's wrong with it that I already don't know myself. Mm -hmm. So that's important as far as progressing goes. And um, so you do have to be able to be able to look at it and go, oh, the proportions are off, the, the perspective is off. Uh, I'll, and if you're on a deadline, sometimes you just got to go, well, I'll do better next time. Or if you have the time, the luxury of time, then fix it. If you can see what's wrong with it, fix it. But a lot of times, most people are never going to see these, these subtle little things that you recognize as the creator as not being perfect or as good as it should be or as good as you are capable of making it. And um, that, that's what keeps me going, is making the next thing better, to, to learn from, from what I've done and to keep progressing and keep progressing. And that's one of the things that fuels me, is knowing that my best work is in front of me. Now, when it comes to a lot of the work that you've done, at, you know, like the big two, the indie work, what do you feel to be like the crowning achievement in terms of your work in general, like what is like the piece that you want, you know, an outside fan to, you know, discover on their own? Well, selfishly, it's, it's, uh, my madman universe, my madman universe mm-hmm. and dark horse has been collecting everything. All of my creator own work is being collected into this library called the madman library. And even though it's called the madman library, it has, the Atomics in it, and, and all of my creator-owned stuff, all of it, even Red Rocket 7, which is a, is a history of rock and roll told through the eyes of, a, of an alien clone, even that connects with my Madman universe. So the, uh, there are threads that connect all of this, and so it, it works in context to have all of my creator-owned work um, collected into these big, beautiful, fancy-schmancy volumes that Dark Horse is publishing. And uh, it's uh, six volumes, like just like a thousand pages in each one, like you know, like I don't know, five, six hundred pages. I'm not exactly sure, but these are monsters, and um, a lot of it is stuff that I swore I would never see reprinted, never wanted it to be reprinted. Like my first stuff, Dead Air and Graphic Music and Graphic Music, and but in the context of a career in these beautiful volumes, I really have come around to actually being fine with it having this historical context. And it was also the opportunity to have this early work uh, be colored for the first time. So Laura, my favorite colorist in the whole wide world, 
um, has colored this stuff for the very first time. And the fifth volume, which either just came out or is about to come out, um, has uh, dead air in it. It's one of the things that's in the fifth volume and in color for the first time. Hmm. And then volume six, which is just about to go to press, uh, has all of uh, graphic music and uh, graphic music collected. And, and the black and white work is now all in color for the first time. So that's the first place I'd want people to look at, just selfishly as here, this is what's completely mine. And it also, there's a lot of the collaborations in there too that um, of the stuff that I solely own. So for instance, iZombie uh, isn't collected in this library because that's co-created with uh, Chris Roberson. And um, where it, it might have been fine to... Um, uh, to put that in there, um, it, generally what's in there is the stuff that it is solely mine. I, one of the exceptions would be the Everyman, which was a one-shot I did with Bernie Moreau for Epic, which was Marvel's um, creator-owned imprint, which no longer exists. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's very gratifying to see what Dark Horse has done. They're beautifully designed. My editor, Daniel Chabon, and Chuck Howitt, um, um and Misha, every, everybody there, um, just just has been giving these beautiful, beautiful design elements to it and, and really just making it beautiful and, and it sings. And I'm so happy and proud of it. So there would be that. Um, uh, Silver Surfer is something that has turned out to be evergreen. It, it's, it, I, I don't think a week goes by. Sometimes a day won't go by without somebody telling me how, how moved they were with, with what Dan and I did with Silver Surfer. Um, FF, which I did with um, Matt Fraction, and then later with my older brother, Lee, who I wouldn't even know what a comic book is if it wasn't for him. And we, one of my very favorite projects, which, um, I, in fact, I, it would be one of the first things I w- would usually mention with that question, Bug, um, which I did with uh, young animal Gerard Way's uh, imprint at DC. Uh, Bug is uh, it, it's a, a character from New Gods, Jack Kirby's New Gods. And when Lee and I took guitar lessons as, as kids, our guitar teacher, James Ray, had a waiting room. And in the waiting room was New Gods number nine, which is the first appearance of Bug. And so we would see this comic week after week, and Lee was constantly trying to get her teacher to give it to him, and finally talked him into it, and we got it. So when um, Gerard asked what I'd like to do for Young Animal, um, it was like, oh, wow, we, we, my brother and I would love to tackle Bug. And, uh, and um, it flew, and we, we got to do it. <laughs> and, and this series, so it's not just that, but... At the time when, when Jack Kirby was working with DC, he did a lot of projects that didn't end. They, they, the, um, he left DC, and there, was, there were several projects, one-shots and series like OMAC and whatnot, that never wrapped up. Mm-hmm. And so what Lee and I did was use Bug to tie the bows on these um uh, loose ends that Jack Kirby left with these with these characters, and for all of those reasons, Bug is one of my most favorite things that I've ever done. I think it's some of my best art. I think uh, Lee did some of his most clever writing with that. 
of, of course, Batman 66 is something that I want to point people at. That was a childhood dream coming true, being Adam West's official cover artist, being at a comic show with him, mm-hmm. and being his, his cover artist, uh, um, sitting in a Batmobile, uh, one of the real Batmobiles with Adam West, having Adam West introduce me to Julie Newmar. You know, for all these sentimental reasons, that's one of my favorite things. And Lee and I, uh, we wrote the last story of the series, Batman 66. Lee wrote the series, and I drew it, and it's uh, um, the main title. So when you see the Batman TV series, there's that animated sequence, and you see them running at you, and then start, you know, villains come in, and they start punching them. Lee actually came up with a way to tell what that story is, and that is the last story in the Batman 66 series. And then there were a bunch of crossovers, and then Lee and I got to do a one-shot with Batman 66, meeting the Legion of Superheroes. Um, so these things come to mind when I'm asked what, what are you know, the things you're really thrilled with. iZombie, that, that, that was crazy. Um, working with uh, Shelley Bond, who was my first editor with Jaguar Stories, the, the series that never came out. She was Shelley Roebuck at the time, married Philip Bond, a terrific cartoonist himself, and so she, now she's Shelley Bond. But um, she became my editor at Vertigo um, and, you know, Karen Berger. And so I was there at the beginning of Vertigo. So uh, what I did on Sandman with Neil and Shade the Changing Man with, uh, with Peter Milligan, one of my favorite uh, writers in the world, uh, uh, co-creating Marvel Mutants with Peter for X-Force and Ecstatics and the excellent. Um, so I'm jumping around here, but these are projects that really, really uh, come to mind as things that I'm really excited about, grateful for, and eager to turn people on to. With iZombie, having that um, turn into a TV series, five seasons on Netflix right now, if anybody's curious to check that out. Mm. The TV series takes place in Seattle, and it does because um, the showrunners, uh, Eugene is where I live, and that's where the comic book series takes place. And you can go through iZombie and actually go around and see real locations that I've drawn into iZombie. And when the TV series came around, the showrunners felt that Eugene didn't have enough murders to justify a procedural series. <laughs> and so uh, we moved the location to Seattle. Um, Anyway, I uh, please feel free to interrupt me. Well, what I was going to ask you was, you know, in regards to creator-owned stuff, such as, you know, the Mad Maniverse, a lot of aspiring creators, you know, will try and create their own universe and just, you know, make their own thing. What is the biggest bit of advice you would want to give to an aspiring creator who wants to tackle a universe, as well as what do you think the biggest misconception is for creators with that concept? Well, you got to start small. It's, it, I mean, it's called world building for a for a reason. Um, you can uh, work out a master plan and start building this, you know, cast list and, and massive population and and um, outline it, which is what I, uh, Madman, has this endless outline. But start small and take little bites. Uh, if you, uh, you using iZombie as an example again. When you start out with iZombie, it's a handful of characters, and you get to know them, and then they run into other characters. And then the combination of characters all start to change the chemistry and create more storytelling opportunities. So um, diving in with um, a universe 
can become a mess very quickly. And so I would just say, um, you know, start with a core group of characters that you have affection for or find or find very interesting and start branching out from there and expand your universe. And if, uh, you know, with success, that universe will naturally build. My Madman cast is crazy. It's, it's huge now. And I can go off in any direction if I need a uh, particular kind of story. I'll have a character that will be able to be the, the doorway for that story. Um, but I always want to um, keep my star cast, you know, close. Sometimes I'll veer away from them entirely. But uh, it's important to uh, maintain a focus so that people don't get lost and to also think in terms of um, having an openness so that new readers won't feel intimidated by jumping on at any point. If, if you can have self-contained stories or story arcs that are easily accessible that you can dive in on, that would, that would be crucial as well. I'm glad, Mike, you clarified the character of Bug, because when you first mentioned that, I thought of the Micronauts in a different oh, universe. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But this I one came love first. I that Bug, too, but not the same Bug. No, not exa- right, exactly. And you're saying New Gods from Kirby. Now, this goes to which iteration? Was it the first run of New Gods, the early version? Oh, yeah. My, Kirby, in fact, uh, um, it wrapped up right after that. So, mm-hmm. um, But... Keep in mind, Kirby was doing how many books then at the same time? Yeah. You know, Forever People, Mr. Miracle, um, Commandy, um, Jimmy Olsen. Uh, it, it's insane how prolific that man was. Mm-hmm. Of course, he didn't ink his own stuff. Inking uh, is something that I really love. I love putting, it's like putting the frosting on the cake. Um, I really love that final flow that I get to put over my drawings. And um, But Kirk, Kirby wasn't precious with, with his pencils. And it allowed him to be way more prolific than, than I don't think, any other cartoonist ever. Going through all the titles that I'm seeing that you were involved with, there was quite a bit of years that went by, but you did get another rock title in here, and it was an independent one. It looks like it was from about four years ago. So uh, tell us about the uh, David Bowie one. Oh, yeah. Well, um, with that, uh, a fellow named Steve Horton contacted me, and... uh, uh, it's no secret I'm a huge David Bowie fan. I, it's, of course, he's in Red Rocket 7, and he's actually appeared, um, not as David Bowie, but a character that is definitely inspired by David Bowie appears in Mad, Mad Man comics. And um, So knowing I was a Bowie fan, Steve contacted me and, and asked me if I'd be interested in doing a biography on him. And uh, I was like, well, yeah, you find the right publisher, and, and uh, if the money's right where I can actually, you know, survive while doing it. And um, so he, he got a deal with uh, Insight and um, uh, hit the ground running. Um, he gave me a, um outline, and, and I just jumped in and I ended up uh, co-writing it. I just, there were a, a, in his outline and what he had scripted, um, there were a lot of um, events that I was familiar with, fascinated with, that he hadn't included, and so I just uh, kept expanding off of that and um, and then just jumped at it. So I just immediately just, uh, you know, finished what I called the shooting script and immediately started drawing it, um, not just because I was enthusiastic, but also because... 
time is always precious and I didn't want to be stopped. And so I really threw myself into it and would definitely call that a labor of love. So gratifying. And one of the most successful things I've ever done, actually. Um, it's probably been in more languages than any other thing I've ever worked on, at least that I'm familiar with and or have received the different uh languages, the different, the different books with the different languages. Like I'm sure a lot of the Marvel and DC stuff has been translated into different languages, but generally they don't send us the foreign languages as comps. So, but with Bowie, I, I have them all. And wow. sometimes was given the opportunity to do, to do new covers, which is always fun. And, and now, um, with, my, uh, one of my very best friends, Ben Saunders, professor Ben Saunders, He's a uh, professor here at the University of Oregon and has curated uh, the best comic art exhibits ever and it curated the Traveling Marvel exhibit, which is, has been, I think it started in Seattle and has gone all over the country and is going to be moving around um, overseas as well. That's Ben Saunders. And we are about a third of the way through of another, uh, same format, different subject so it's not Bowie this time and I can't say who it is yet okay but yeah we're a third of the way through and the cover I did for it may be my single favorite cover I've ever done so when that comes out take note I just am so happy with it do we know uh, or can we say under which um, publisher company that is or what projected time frame that it should be coming out well there's uh the if the projected time frame is spare time um and so I'm, i i don't uh it was there was kind of a hard deadline with bowie and um that at least there was a deadline that i worked really hard to stick to this time um it it's uh more loosey-goosey and uh i'm doing my best to get it done as quickly as possible and again it's a third of the way done that i hand lettered it I am hand-lettering it. I hand-lettered Bowie, and Laura uh, has completely colored it, too. So a third of it is completely mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. And um, I probably shouldn't talk about it more than that, because yeah. it, it, it should really just talk about stuff that is immediately coming and uh, or or stuff that people can be pointed at. Sure. So in, in, in that case, I, I, I would steer back to uh, Superman Space Age, one of my favorite things I've ever done. Yeah, I was going to go uh, there, actually, next to Mark Good Russell. Call. Mm-hmm. And Mark and I are following up with Batman Dark Age, and that's literally what's in front of me right now. I'm, I'm talking on hands-free uh, Ray-Ban meta glasses, so I can, I can actually work and talk at the same time, and uh, I can actually even videotape what I'm or not videotape, I can record videotape. Mm-hmm. There's that old-school TV reporter coming through. That's I okay. can record what's right in front of me. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows, one, Fantastic Voyage, 
where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. Well, I was going to ask you in regards to a lot of the characters that, you know, you character-wise, you know, there's been like a heavy association with like the big two characters of characters from like the 40s all the way to like maybe the early 70s. And there are some characters, you know, that I was just thinking about earlier. I've never seen you draw Moon Knight, for example. And just the idea, like certain ones, like I don't know if I could ever see that possibly exist. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like, there, I feel like there are certain kinds of character types that, you know, I associate with you. And to go any further would be like mind blowing. You know what I mean? I don't know, because I would love to do Moon Knight. <laughs> and I would love to see that. I love what Greg, Greg Smallwood drew with that. I love his art, and that, that was uh, one of my favorite books when that was coming out. But no, there, uh, I can't think of many characters that I wouldn't want to get my stamp on. But it's all about time, right? It's mm-hmm. like there's only so much time. But it's amazing. I, I was uh, given a list of all the characters that I've worked on, if even just on a cover. And there's almost no one I haven't at least done a cover with or a pinup with uh, for somebody that just wanted one book. Um, I'm, I'm pretty happy to have been able to do all the things I've done. I just think the idea of, you know, again, going back over to a Moon Knight by Mike Allred, I don't, have you drawn him or has that not happened yet? I don't think I have. And that's kind uh, of surprising. You know, um, when I've been asked that before, I often be um, stoppered not being able to think of anybody I haven't done. And I don't think I have done Moon Knight. Somebody, somebody will probably chime in and remind me where I have, but I don't think I have. Well, it'd be cool to say that, you know, to be completely honest. But, like, you know, there are characters that, you know, also they don't fit the Mike Allred, you know, mold for, like, what the character could be in my mind. But yet you manage to take that character and knock it out of the park. And the one that I'm thinking of right off the bat is none other than Deadpool. Like, there's some of those Deadpool oh. covers that you did. Like, I love the one with Sabretooth and the, I believe it's a bunch of bees. And yeah. it, it, it's such a fun cover and it again works on so many levels but it's funny Deadpool is not like when you look at Deadpool based on the origin of the character you know in the early 90s and whatnot like it's the you know quote unquote extreme kind of character and yet you're given the character to work on and it becomes a Mike Allred style character and I love the hell out of that thanks well Deadpool snuck snuck up on us because uh, the second Deadpool movie used our X Force um, plot, where uh, that Peter and I did, where we you build a team, then you immediately kill it off, and um, and uh, Zeitgeist is uh, our creation. Um, so uh, got a lot of love and benefits from that happening, and uh, 
So, hey, kids, if, if you want a lot of good things to happen, have uh, Marvel put one of your creations in a, in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what I can do, but, actually. Yeah, the, and, then, uh, and so, yeah, now I feel like I'm part of the Deadpool universe in, in that way and, and uh, was thrilled to do those covers. The one where he's holding up the, the keychain uh, became a T-shirt and is the uh, cover of the omnibus of that, uh, that run. So it, that, that's just fun. I mean, it's never not fun. I love making comic books, I, and I love seeing them printed, and I love seeing them on the shelf in a comic book store. I just love it. That's excellent. Now, even before you, you touched on going back to your old TV reporter days videotape, uh, this is a personal question to me, but before you got into the comics part, and like you said, 1989, how much time... Did you spend first in radio and then over to TV? Because I'm thinking that, and again, this goes back to bug, you get bitten by the, at least at the beginning, the radio bug, and perhaps it just stays with you regardless of where you go after that. Well, the broadcasting thing was a happy accident. Um, uh, kid Eric Warden, who lived across the street growing up, his dad owned the local radio stations. Mm. There was an AM station and an FM station. And when um, I was about to go to college, I got a part-time job there, and just because again it was a job. Mm-hmm. And then when I was in college, uh, I art was my major. I wanted to be an artist. That was uh, for my whole life. Everybody assumed that's what I was going to do. It was the thing I was best at. And when I got there. I started to panic. I, it, there wasn't any instructor explaining how to make a living making art. And maybe you could get into the commercial field and you get in the commercial field and you're doing what other people want you to do. And specifically, uh, I've done some commercial things. The money is fantastic, but you're jumping through hoops and redoing things and redoing things and the pickiness of it can drive you insane. Um, I didn't like the idea of spending my life taking gigs and then having the being micromanaged in the actual creation of things. So I thought, well, you know what, maybe I'll just keep art as this hobby, this thing that I love to do and look into broadcasting so i switched my there was a radio station at the and uh so i started doing that and was a disc jockey at the college radio station and then after two years of college just thought you know what i've got a job waiting for me and ended up uh, being a you know dj full-time i would do it was called KY95 or KYS, which was the rock and roll AM station. And then KRSB, the FM station, was adult contemporary. But on Saturdays, they uh, from midnight to 6 in the morning, it was called Night Rock. Mm-hmm. And so I did a midday show for the AM rock station, and then I did Night Rock Saturday nights going into Sunday morning. So six days a week. And with that, I could play anything I wanted. And that was a blast. I believe yeah, it. Especially with the program director and, you know, the, <laughs> nobody's 
nobody's checking me. Sometimes they would. Actually, at one time I played Amsterdam, which, which was a flip side to a, a David Bowie single. I can't remember what was the A side, but Amsterdam was the flip side. And it's, a, it, it's talking about this man who's, uh, you know, losing his teeth and eating fish heads and tails. It's kind of, the lyrics are gross. Mm. Uh, Scott Walker originally did the song of the Walker Brothers. But, and he was a big influence on David Bowie. But I love this stuff, and people called in and complained. And I think uh, the owner, my friend's dad, and by the way, Eric, hugely successful. Uh, uh, he became the program director at, there. But also, you'll hear his voice on TV commercials. Like, he, he's right now he's doing an uh, Internet company, Spectrum. He's the voice of Spectrum right now. So Eric went on to huge success. Uh, his dad, Tom, passed away uh, a few years ago. But what happened with me playing Amsterdam and then finding out that other people had complained about some of the esoteric stuff I did, uh, the next day uh, they came in and put, uh, you know, those little uh, colorful stickers, little circles? Mm-hmm. They took a bunch of black circle stickers and put them on all the records that I wasn't allowed to play anymore. And then as I would go on to find more records that that other people didn't like hearing, more black stickers uh, came on and started to limit limit me. But what happened was uh, Laura got pregnant, and an Air Force recruiter would come in to deliver Air Force spots. And he came in, and we, we would talk. You know, he was a friendly guy, and... We would converse, and, and he found out that Laura was pregnant. He said, well, you know what? You can do what you're doing now, see the world, and free babies. And I was like, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's look into this. And one thing that had happened, um, I uh, also did theater in college. I played Dracula, and um, uh, Stanley Kubrick threw this wide net for unknown actors for a full metal jacket. So I auditioned for full metal jacket and in auditioning for full metal jacket, I read the original book, the short timers. And so I kind of had this military mindset as, and um, where before I couldn't imagine ever being anywhere near the military, but back then there were, there wasn't any worry about war or anything. And this, again, this recruiter's like, it's a day job. It's nothing. And, and, you know, it's like any other job, and in some cases, you don't, you're not even wearing a uniform. And uh, so I was open to it, uh, because if you read the short-timers or watch Full Metal Jacket, you don't want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but with this, it's like, okay, because uh, we were concerned about medical bills and, and all of that, because, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money as a disc jockey. And so because of the experience I had, I tested... Uh, so high that I ended up going straight onto the faculty at the Air Force Academy, and then from there was sent to Europe, where I became a TV reporter. And uh, the last story I ever did over there, the first one I did, there was an air show where these two Italian jets collided midair, and one of the jets went into the crowd. And this was when home video was becoming more popular, so a lot of people in the crowds had their own cameras. And we were tasked to gather as many of those as we could to get all of these different uh, perspectives and send them to the major networks. And so you, any stories that you saw in this disaster came from what we delivered. 
And the first story I did was on a helicopter rescue pilot and the, the, or a rescue team. And then the last story I did was on um, the uh, Berlin Wall coming down and um, interviewing East German refugees and stuff like that. It takes you so right that, up to the 89 part. That ended my European television career. Wow, and, yeah. But then, so what? I didn't quite catch what year or years it was that you were doing the radio because what kind of struck me out well, about that was playing rock music on an AM station. And I'm like, wait, it wasn't yeah. that that far along ago. It wasn't, you know, unless there were just certain stations that still on AM were doing that kind of thing instead of talking or whatever. Yeah, this was early '80s uh, into mid '80s, and then um, uh, so we we were. Um, uh, Eric, the program director, was one of the, you know how they'll break music, and we were one of the records that pushed U2 real heavy, for instance, back mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of that would happen. And I remember uh, like getting Pink Floyd's The Final Cut before anybody else and stuff, which, you know, if you're a Pink Floyd fan, that was exciting. But I w- went, uh, we moved to Colorado Springs to work at the Air Force Academy in 1984, went to Europe in 1988. So disc jockey up till then, faculty on um, uh, at the Air Force Academy up until 88, and then overseas, um, being sent all over Europe covering human interest stories primarily. Uh, that would be uh, 88 to 90, because January of 90, we moved back to the States. And it was funny because we... Our main job was putting together this uh, magazine show, which I can't remember the title, but it, it aired on, I think Laura said it aired on, reminded me that it aired on Sundays. But it was human interest stories. So I would be sent to, uh, to do a story on a, on a youth center in Athens, or I'd be sent to England where a woman made scale castles. These come to mind because those were some of the more enjoyable stories. The hard news stories rarely happened unless it was happening in front of us, and that's why the the uh, air disaster was my first story, and the fall of the Berlin Wall was the last story. So the two biggest hard news stories I ever did were the first and last ones that I did. Great stuff. Did that answer I your think. question? <laughs> yeah, and then some. Yeah, no, no, no. A lot of great stuff there too. And I'm assuming that, given the chance, the radio bug is still within you. Um. I love rock and roll, man, uh, and uh, I love radio. I um, I love music. So yeah, I, I don't know if I. Um, hmm. I don't nobody's mean to give it up me, for anything. nobody's asked me to be a di- disc jockey since, but uh, that I remember how much fun it was. So they're currently looking for a nine to uh, eleven spot. <laughs> so. <laughs> Just, just one weekend night, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know if I have the chops anymore. <laughs> now, it's funny because in regards to, you know, what is next in the realm of comics, like we see so much stuff, and I feel like in oh, the— Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. If I could just, since you, you kind of planted the seed in my head, do you have—I uh, don't know even how it's done anymore because we— uh, we had actual discs, and we were used playing real records. And I had, I would have nightmares about going to the bathroom and the song ending, and running back, and 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 you just hear that. I'd have nightmares about that, you know. And 
you, you know what the the bathroom break songs are, you know, like in Agata de Vida or <laughs> Hotel California. <laughs> put on a, the whole side of an album and, and hope that you can get back before it ends. So we, we're playing this stuff live. I don't think that happens so much anymore. You, you tell me, but um, yeah, nightmares. Now, you can go three songs, get to, you get a good 10 minutes before uh, you're running into trouble. And a lot of it is in the computer. It's auto, it, There's a good deal of automation and that, you know, right. wiped, wiped out a lot of jobs and stuff like that. But then, then I'm going to go off to 1996 and President Clinton deregulating the FCC. Uh, and so, yeah. <laughs> but see, all of that happened after my t- tenure. So uh, when I started hearing about automation and... Um, like, what are they, like, are they loading carts? Are they uh, on a reel? Like, oh, no, this is digital. And digital, what's digital? Yes, exactly. Right. right. <laughs> you don't have to hurt yourself splicing things together now. It's all on the computer. Oh, I'd be so lost if I even tried to get back into something like that. I, I wouldn't have a clue on what to do. So now in regards to, like, the future of comics, because we're seeing so many different things in regards to the innovations of the art form of comics, and one of them is, you know, just going online and doing, you know, like, Webtoon. Like, you see, you know, uh, Fabian Nicieza and, uh, uh, what's his name, Riley Eddie Brown? Is it Riley Brown? Sounds familiar. Riley, just Mr. Riley will call him right now, because I'm, I'm having a brain fart. Like, I don't remember. I'm well prepared for this. Baba uh, O'Reilly. Yeah. Um, Who? But in regards to this. Baba O'Reilly, I love that song. <laughs> just played it today. I swear as God is my witness. <laughs> I have to Bam! Send, I have to send you a clip later on involving uh, the comedian Joe Parra discovering that song for the first time. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Him dancing uh-huh. with a dog. Okay. But um, in regards to, you know, the innovations of technology and how we're seeing everything go forward and, like, you know, the the art form of comics changing. We're seeing things like, you know, places like Webtoon and, you know, you're seeing like the scrolling technique of, you know, telling a story. Have you ever considered dabbling in things like that to, you know, see where, what you can, you know, play with like the new play thing of just, you know, the different formats? You know, I'm only just now even becoming familiar with any of this stuff. I, I, again, I've just kind of been living in this cave and um, Bill Cox of Comic Art Fan is the, the guy that's putting this event together in Orlando. And he was the first guy. I went through the whole pandemic never going anywhere near Zoom. And um, then after that all went down, Bill talked me into doing these live art auctions uh, where there would be an interview and I'd have some pieces to put up and people would, you know, buy them while, while the interview was going on. So that was my first on-camera um, anything with, uh, you know, YouTube and whatnot. Like I, in fact, before that, I didn't even have uh, um, none of our computers even had cameras or anything. You know, Laura has this Cintiq where she colors on a on this big thing. Uh, um, anyway, I'm, again, I'm not a techie guy. So when people say, "Oh, could we do a Zoom interview?" I'd be like, "You know, I don't even have a, I don't even have a camera. I think there's a camera." On... In fact, I didn't. My first, my first cell phone was an iPhone Seven, and mm. then uh, finally I bore down and got the fourteen. <laughs> I'm there. That's as te- techy as I get. But um, with, when I uh, started doing this, and this stuff would get popped up, and then people would say, "Oh, there's." Uh, like uh, cartoonist kayfabe when I was turned on to that that that's been where I've spent more hours than anything because I mean cartoonists so I'm immediately relating to these guys one of them Jim Rugg who I've worked with 
you know, he was one of our um, iZombie filming artists. It, it's just brilliant. They, they put a comic book under a camera and they leaf through every page and talk about it. It's intoxicating. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then people would, and I discovered it because people would tell me, oh, they, they featured this book of yours, this old Spider-Man annual that you did. And, and uh, so they would just pop up and I'd look at this stuff and, and it was just fun. And so now I'm just trying to be a little more open to that kind of stuff and, and see what else is out there and what I might be interested in playing with. Um, so the short answer is I'm really not familiar with much of anything, but I am, like I say in Stripes, I am willing to learn. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's really funny, though. You know, you mentioned about the Zoom interviews and stuff like this. Were you shocked that when I approached you about this interview, I was like, yeah, it's going to be a phoner, just to let you know. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I, I was always like, oh, I'll do that. <laughs> And it's funny because, like, you know, this style, like, I, I prefer this in a lot of ways, also because, you know, I don't want to have to pay for Zoom after a while. But, um, you know, just the idea of a phone, or it works. It just works. Like, I've, you know, gone back and forth over the years about it, but I'm like, you know what? If it if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, like, this is one of those. Like, Eddie, if I, if I you know, bitch and kvetch about a phone interview ever again, just thwack me in Put the head. Put you in your place? Yeah, no, exactly. Well, no, not that, but just thwack me in the head. Thwack. Actions yeah. speak louder than words. And, and it's like, funny, Ow. too. I don't know if, uh, if if Peter got to tell you, Michael, but we recently did get to talk to and speak with Jim Rugg and Ed Pisker at the most recent Big Apple Comic Con. Love those guys. And it's funny because, like, they're... I actually had no idea that your debut with Marvel was that Untold Tales of Spider-Man book. I had no idea. And I remember... Um, Again, tying it back over to the Kayfabe Boys, you know, discovering it through that episode and then also buying that book at the uh, fabled Koch's Comics in Brooklyn, New York, where, by the way, they definitely beat the Kayfabe effect on that one because there was like about, I think, an entire, and I'm not kidding, like there is an entire uh, long box of just that one issue. And I was like, well, (laughs) I'm good on finding it now. (laughs) Wow. But like somebody had that entire like run of that, but like a ton of those annuals because of how important that issue is, because it is your debut. And on top of that, it's like, trust me, you're going to want to check this book out, you know, and it is, well, it also, is one of those. Joe Sinnott inked me for crying out loud. Yeah. <laughs> the great legendary yeah. Joe Sinnott. What a nice guy. Inked me. I, they asked me who I would like to, to have ink me. And I thought, oh, well, I'll pie in the sky. How about Joe Sinnott? And Kurt Busiek, I, I don't know if he was pals with him or what, but pulled him out and made it happen. And whew, what a mm. treat. It made your stuff sing. Like, it was just absolutely gorgeous-looking art. And then on top of that, the coloring. Like, it again, it's a book made in 1996 that looks like something that just came out last week. Mm. You know? And it, it is gorgeous. And it's one of those, like, it's still, keep saying it, That's th- that thing is timeless. Good. So now, Mike, in regards to what is next in your career, what is the next big project you got coming along the lines? Obviously, we got Batman. What else? Well, I've always got uh, something with Madman on the back burner, and uh, and then uh, this epic uh, music graphic novel. Um, th- those are those are what are directly in front of me. But then I'm also talking with. Um, my favorite collaborators about you know what are we going to do next? So I'm uh, uh, talk with uh, Dan Slot often. Um, we did a uh, that Captain Marvel the the original Marvel Captain Marvel the um, in the you know Marvel in the white suit with the green helmet with the fin and uh, that was a blast. So uh, 
And then uh, Mark Russell and I are talking about what we're going to follow Batman Dark Age with. So we have aspirations there, which I hope will happen. And um, uh, time is always the enemy. They're, like It took forever for Peter and I, Peter Milligan and I, to get back to our Marvel mutants with the excellent, but that was so always open and hoping to do something with him. I always love working with Neil Gaiman. Uh, everything with him is always a treat. And like he was just at our house a, a few months ago. Um, but yeah, there's always, there's always enthusiastic discussions. And then when things time out, so as I'm finishing Dark Age, will it be the next thing with Mark? Will it be the next thing with Dan Slott? You know, I'd like I'd love to work with Matt Fraction again. Um, so it's it's just a, a lot of talking with you know friends and peers and and uh, what we want to do and just kind of throw these dreams out there and then they all just kind of line up naturally and uh, whatever solidifies first is what goes on the schedule. You know, it's funny that, you know, earlier you mentioned Sandman. The one book for me that I will always, like, it stands out for me is the Prez issue. And it's funny about that because Sandman is known as, like, being this visual, again, visual spectacular that, you know, you can't get enough of. It's mind-bending. It's this. It's that. And, you know, paired alongside Neil's amazing writing. And yet it's funny because I'm reading and I'm like, yes, this is good. But then your issue came along, blew me away, and it was so different than anything I had read in the series up to that point. And it's, you know, obviously there's the Shakespeare issue that, you know, is a very, you know, memorable one. But that Prez, that Prez one, man, I'm still thinking about it. Uh, you know, I, it, obviously it's flattering, and, I'm, and it's, I keep hearing that. I, I, uh, first time I would hear people say, oh, that issue struck them, I think, oh, that's nice. And, but then I keep hearing it. And, um, so I don't know if people are just being really nice or if there is something particularly special about that. Cause that whole series is killer. And Sandman is one of the greatest things ever made in medium. And I'm just really happy to be one small part of it. Hopefully a significant, if small part of it. And it's funny because like that was, that was the, you know, for myself and probably a ton of others, that was my introduction to the character. I had never heard of, uh, Prez, the teenage president before, but it's like, you know, yeah, that's weird. Yeah. In fact, it was strange because, um, like I said, I was right there at the beginning of Vertigo, uh, the Vertigo jam, uh, like the first Vertigo stuff that came out, the official Vertigo imprint stuff, there was the Vertigo jam. I did that shade a story with Peter Milligan and I, uh, with, uh, Rachel, I did, um, the geek, the one shot with brother power, the geek. And that was uh, really odd. So Joe Simon, who co-created Captain America with Jack Kirby in the seventies, wanted to kind of tap into the youth counterculture. And, um, so it's an older dude trying to be cool. And he does brother power, the geek and Prez. He creates Prez. So when I did The Geek, and uh, so, okay, great. And then immediately after that, Neil was inspired to uh, have me do Prez. So when he approached me with that story, my first reaction was, uh, I, am I going to be the 
guy that's resurrecting old Joe Simon characters, <laughs> and and I wasn't sure. And and he he kind of laid out the plot, and then just said, "Please trust me. I I really feel strongly about this." And uh, if Neil Gaiman says, "Please trust me," just trust him. Mm-hmm. And I did, and I'm happy I did. So of the more recent stuff again, Superman, Space Age. Batman, Dark Age, I'm thinking the next one there would be Wonder Woman. I'm not going to say. <laughs> uh, just just going by that, you know, the top three DC, the, the originals, and maybe it's Amazon Age or Flight Age. I don't, you know. Oh, my God. Mike Allred's going to do a Mad Dog comic. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, I would read the hell out of that. <laughs> yes. Just for the record, for the record, I would read the hell out of that book. Yes, you would. Mm-hmm. He's got well, a hockey the mask. First Dark Age is out. Uh, we it was just announced a few weeks ago. It, it's so frustrating nowadays. Everything's so secretive, and the publishers. Back in the day, you would just tell people what you're working on and and not worry about any promotional marketing plans. Nowadays, they really want you to keep you know a lid on it, and and uh, everything's very secretive so that they can announce things exactly the way they want to. Mm-hmm. And you'll be working on something. I'll be working on something that I'm really pumped with. I'm loving it, and I'm not allowed to say what it is. And so when they finally officially announce something, it just feels so liberating. And that's where I'm at with Batman Dark Age. I'm, I honestly think it's the best thing I've ever done. And um, the first issue will be out in March. Let me tell you, though, ladies and gentlemen, it was such a secret that after they announced it, I still had no idea that it happened. That's why when off mic, Mike had mentioned to us, I'm working on this. I'm like, wait, what? And that was a gen- <laughs> his he, he can vouch. My reaction was genuinely like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And I had no idea. So, oh, yeah, it, it just announced. And, oh, man, like day before yesterday, I got uh, Frank Quitely's variant cover. There, the it, Oh, man, Kevin Nolan's doing one, Dave Johnson. The, the, it's so thrilling. Here I am, you know, the, this is my version of Batman. You know, I, I'm not going off any, any strange, weird thing, but it, distinctly how I want to draw Batman. And um, to have these terrific artists who I'm such a huge fan of doing, it's, it's, it's such a treat. I, I'm just loving it, and all these different covers are just pure bonus. It's funny, though, because, you know, in regards to, you know, your own creation with Madman, like, you've had that character, you know, people will cosplay as a character. I've seen Madman cosplays over the years, and I'll ask this, because, like, I always love asking creators that, you know, they idolize the work of other creators. Who... Like, what was the biggest name that, you know, you idolized that did a madman piece? And you're just like, oh, my God, this person I look up to is doing my character now. This is insane. Well, I I can go on. I mean, Jack Kirby, Alex Toth, uh, Dave Stevens, the Hernandez brothers, um, Alex, uh, Barry Windsor Smith, uh, Alex, uh, Frank Frazetta. Hmm. That, that Frank Miller introduced me at a show to Frank Frazetta. Frank introduced me to Frank, hmm. and um, and Frank Miller talked Frank Frazetta into doing it because 
He's like, I did one. And it's like, okay. <laughs> um, Alex Toth actually mentored me for uh, uh, quite a while. And um, I would send him my comics, and, and uh, he would uh, mentor me on them and, and go to, got to go to Alex Toth's house in Hollywood. So all of this is, is mind-blowing. Um, got to meet Jack Kirby twice. He and Roz, beautiful, wonderful people. And um, I, the, the, the tragedy, Jack Kirby's a legend, probably the most significant creator in the history of comics. Uh, Will, Will Eisner, huge in our lives, would, would uh, check in with us at, at show after show after show. But Kirby, being as significant as he is, never got as much love as he got it was never what he should have gotten and i think if he was around now it'd be a whole different story and the rewards would have been way more justified how many uh jack kirby shoot interviews do you think the cartoonist cafe boys would have had by now you know, you know it would be and, the and, and i Kirk, he would have been he was so accessible you know yeah. he'd let people come over to his house he he would do as many as asked, I'm sure, um, and uh, and teach us all so much more. Is what an inspiration. I uh, never at a loss of inspiration, and it's because of creators like him and others I've mentioned. And you, in fact, go to uh, when you look at the, these Mad Madman Library books, all of the pinups. I think there's over 200 at this point. You know, all these different creators doing their rendition of my creation. It, it's um, it's mind-numbingly wonderful and always a treat to see how these different creators approach things. And all of them inspire me and teach me. I, um, so there's that. The cool One of the coolest things that you can say is, you know, Kirby never drew Wolverine. But he drew <laughs> Madman, like legit. And like I'm looking at that piece and it's like you made it's I love that you made this character that you know a lot of the, the old school guys can be like, Oh, I totally would have had a great run in that character. Like you look at that, like imagine a Jack Kirby Madman run. Like that's I, I I like to imagine that things that he would have done with in the after the independent movement where he, you know, I mean, he he did manage to create some things that he maintained ownership for. But if he could have, and he 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 was only in his early seventies, I think. Yeah. We we when he died, we we were at a Boston show in nineteen ninety four when he died, and um, well, I, if if he could have just stuck it out a little longer, been healthier. Or, uh, I don't know. I just think of the things that we missed out on. I feel that way about all the people that we've lost. Um, you always think about the things that that would have happened and they were still, I mean, we were talking about David Bowie. I mean, leaving us with Black Star, one of the best things he ever did, but what else would he have done? Mm-hmm. He, it's crazy. He had a heart attack and disappeared for a while and then he came back with the next day and then Black Star, so he was revitalized and to think of what more we could have got if, if he didn't leave us. Um, there's a lot of creators. There are creators that are still alive that, that I love and, and am inspired by that have left the industry. 
you know, doing whatever else, whether it's teaching or commercial art, and would just wish that there was enough incentive for them to keep working in the business and keep lighting, lighting us up. But I've been very fortunate, and I'm happy that I am able to continue doing this, and I have no intentions of ever stopping. Well, Mike, we do say, obviously, thank you for taking the time and also for you now hitting this year a milestone. Sometime in, in 24, you'll have uh, 35 years under your belt doing this. Yeah, well, it's it's exactly uh, what I, I've been doing comics full-time since January of 1990. So that's, mm. what, 34 years okay. exactly? I got caught up with the 89 part, so yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't count that. That was like <laughs> hobby stuff, but... Uh, um, thanks to Laura, even when when my career wasn't clicking, um, she was the breadwinner and, and uh, kept me going where I never had to go back for another day job. So officially, as of January 1990, I've been doing comics full time. God damn. <laughs> now... Before we let you get going, first off, Mike, thank you so much for the honor and privilege to finally be able to speak to you after all these years. Well, thank you for having any interest in me at all. <laughs> and believe me, that art was interest alone. Good Lord. Huh. All right. <clears throat> Before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Um, well, I've, I've, uh, it's almost always uh, all red MD, like with Blue Sky or Threads or Twitter what, or X or whatever it's called now. No, we're still going to call it Twitter. Facebook page, um, something tweaked with it, and I never really got into Facebook, but Laura still has one, so you can find Laura Allred on Facebook. Um, did I say Blue Sky? Oh, and uh, uh, Instagram. I, I probably post more stuff on Instagram than anywhere because I can, you know, take a picture and pop it up there. So, And a lot of my hobbies and stuff get thrown up there. Uh, I think there's a lot of fun stuff to scroll on Instagram. Uh, some of the adventures Laura and I have been on, being able to stay in the Rocky Horror Picture Show Hotel and the village and from the Prisoner TV show. And, and, uh, and then the first place to go, the easiest place to branch out off of, would be AAAPOP.com. That's our company. So... A-A-A-P-O-P dot com. Go there, and um, that's where um, my best bud, Brian, is the contact there if people need to get in touch with me um, for anything. And and uh, the branches off in every other direction. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Michael Allred. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. Excelsior.